Welcome to Hello from the Pluriverse, a podcast about sharing the stories of designers and design thinkers from different backgrounds around the world. I'm Leslie-Anne Noel, a designer from Trinidad and Tobago and a professor of practice at Tulane University in New Orleans. The name of our podcast is a reference to Designs for the Pluriverse by Arturo Escobar. In our podcast, we explore the stories of designers from many different countries, women designers, designers of color, and designers from the LGBTQI community. In our interviews, we explore how place and identity affect their work, what they say about design, design thinking, and social innovation, and what advice they would give to non-designers who are using design methods. We'll continue to share more stories throughout the series about designers from many different worlds, from our little corner of the world, at the Phyllis M. Taylor Center for Social Innovation and Design Thinking at Tulane University in New Orleans. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Hello from the Pluriverse podcast, sponsored by the Phyllis M. Taylor Center for Social Innovation and Design Thinking at Tulane University, where we discuss the work of different designers in design thinking practices. My name is Natalie Hudnick. I'm in my second year in the Master of Public Health and Maternal and Child Health program here at Tulane School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. And I'm also a design thinking graduate assistant working at the Taylor Center. I'm originally from outside St. Louis, Missouri, and I have a bachelor's degree in cultural anthropology. I'm here today with co-host Michaeline. Michaeline, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Michaeline Engelmeyer. I'm a first year student in the Master of Public Health Nutrition program here at Tulane. Uh, like Natalie, I'm also a design thinking graduate assistant working at the Taylor Center, and I am a Midwesterner originally from Chicago, Illinois. Today, we are going to be listening in on the interview of Dr. Molly Fonin. Dr. Fonin is an instructor for the Social Innovation and Social Entrepreneurship Minor Program at Tulane University and is a research fellow at the Phyllis M. Taylor Center. At the Taylor Center, she also does community outreach programming and helps with the scholarship initiatives at the center. Dr. Fonin has collaborated on local and international research projects from New Orleans to Central America to East Africa, spending, spanning topics like gender and social entrepreneurship, cultural development, design thinking for reproductive health, and the diffusion of design thinking through capacity building. This interview was originally recorded in the fall of 2019. Michaeline and I are here today to hear what Dr. Fonin has to say about her approach to design thinking and after the recording, we'll be here to discuss our thoughts, what we learn, and hopefully spark some discussion for our listeners. So let's take a listen. So currently, I am an instructor in the Social Innovation and Social Entrepreneurship Undergraduate Minor Program at Tulane University. And I also do some of the design thinking outreach programming for the Taylor Center, as well as help with our research and scholarship initiatives. So that's really about catalyzing research on social innovation, but also, um, you know, gearing research towards social change. Um, so I do a variety of different things uh, that includes, you know, teaching and facilitation and professional development, and then also my own research and writing. Um, and I just recently completed my doctorate in international development from Tulane as well. So that's sort of my background field of discipline. Ooh, those are some, in those are, that's a really interesting question because there's a lot of answers there. So I'll choose a couple of um, major highlights. Mm -hmm. uh, I always was interested in, you know, sort of devoting my career to, you know, the social good of the world. And mm -hmm. I've also really always been interested in learning and teaching and collaborating. And 
especially in social innovation, but also sometimes in international development, people often have, we often take a very problems focused view of the world. So we mm-hmm. specialize in a certain problem area like education or um, you know a certain region like East Africa. And I've always been inter- interested in process questions so how we, you know, sort of engage in our practices as, you know, change makers, as scholars, as administrators, who can also all be change makers, um, you know, as development agencies, as nonprofits. So I've always really been interested in process questions and, you know, how we sort of do the work, how we, um, you know, sort of create things and problem solve with each other and how we relate to different sort of stakeholders in our orbit. So in international development, I always really became interested in questions of, you know, participatory development or research and, you know, sort of relationships between donor organizations and the sort of frontline implementing agencies or, you know, those agencies and their beneficiaries. Um, So I've always been drawn to those questions and, it just so happened that Tulane was starting a social innovation and social entrepreneurship minor at the time mm-hmm. I was engaging in my sort of early on in my graduate studies. And my advisor, Laura Murphy, um, asked me to come unofficially TA for a design thinking class in the, which is one of the required classes for the minor. And so I kind of just showed up to class and we were working on this um, project to transform or really to activate a space that had been created by the Tulane School of Architecture students. Um, There were these sort of mobile pods on this space in Central City in New Orleans. And the property was owned by a development corporation at the time and they just didn't really know what to do with it. So they asked Mm -hmm. our students to sort of brainstorm and envision possibilities for the space. And um, I just kind of fell in love with the process of design thinking and human-centered design Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, at that time, I think I was reading a lot of heavy critical theory and feeling pretty glum about international development practice and what to do with all of this information, all of this yeah. you know, cause there's so many flaws in the way that we engage in any of these practices, um, mm-hmm. but particularly the field of international development and sort of aid systems in particular, yeah. there's, you know, there's a lot that we can sort of tear down there, but it left me feeling, you know, sort of, well, okay, what do I do now? And um, meeting human-centered design started me on a pathway of feeling a little bit like I had more agency, but also that there were more possibilities to sort of co-create futures um, in the world. And, you know, it engaged my creativity and my empathy and, sort of aligned with some of my values. And so I just kind of started just going. Gravitated towards it. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of accidental as some of the best things in life are. Um, and then I started teaching the design thinking class and then I got really interested in this question of um, what could human-centered design, especially the kind of training that we might be offering to individual students, um, what could it offer to an organization, mm-hmm. you know, sort of, rethinking their practices as a collective unit. So what would it look like to get people from the same organization in the room together for training and where could they go with those possibilities? 
and what might it actually look like to try to change some of the paradigms about how we run organizations mm -hmm. based on design thinking. And I'll be a little bit less abstract there. I was sort of wondering, you know, some of our undergraduate students, but also we were training, you know, graduate students and professionals, you know, as they leave our trainings, how do they go back to their organizations and say, you know, I think we might be taking a simplistic sort of linear view of problem solving here. And I'd love us to, you know, sort of prototype as a build to think exercise to, you know, come up with different possibilities to solve this problem. I mean, I, can you, some people would be able to easily do that, but how do you change, you know, the sort of culture of an organization to start? Yeah, and the environment and like the systems that are built into the, organization already those things are really hard to like change yeah and to make room for experimentation you know risk taking in a lot of organizations if you sort of work outside of silicon valley <laughs> or not is not necessarily encouraged and especially in international development where you know you sort of got the public's money or donors money that you have to be accountable for um, it becomes hard to take those types of risks and introduce experimentation in a safe way mm -hmm. um, you know, or to not try to just plan your way out of a problem. Um, so yeah, so those were sort of the questions I became interested in. I really think that it's a set of tools, methods, mindsets, practices that help us sort of imagine into being new, you know, scenarios, new arrangements, new futures, sometimes in the more immediate sense of creating, you know, sort of a a new product or a new meeting structure and then sometimes it's about sort of envisioning long-term possibilities um, and it asks us to engage some different skill sets that for me you know I don't have design training that um, you know I might have some inherent creativity and empathy but really learning um, how to push my visualization skills is a different mm -hmm. way of thinking and communicating. Um, really learning to be experimental and you know, ambiguity tolerant has been um, you know, really important for me. And ultimately it's about, creating, it's about creating something that adds value to people's lives mm -hmm. and a social value, which could be sort of subjectively defined, right? Yeah. Um, but, at the heart of it, I think it's about, you know, sort of using design as a tool for action or a way of connecting knowledge to action mm -hmm. to create scenarios that, you know, correct imbalances, that um, sort of redress injustices, that, um, you know, alleviate suffering. And so um, there's that narrow sort of definition of design thinking in terms of how, what's gotten popular. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure you'll have lots of people talking about that. And I think that that's part of sort of the podcast is to try to present these different perspectives. Yeah. I definitely learned design thinking through the sort of traditional, um, what some call, scholars have called the management discourse promoted by, you know, IDEO and uh, the Stanford D school. But now I've come to see of it as design as a tool for taking action and it's like any field or practice. Um, and I think anyone can benefit from design, just like anyone can benefit from learning research skills. Yeah. Can benefit from studying social theory. Um, anyone can benefit from, you know, I don't know, a dance class, right? Like there are all these different practices that we can adopt that we can use um, 
you know, at different times and as is appropriate, but design is like a mode of, um, you know, creation or imagining that sometimes mm -hmm. uh, traditional research and scholarship hasn't always left open for me, you know, so what to do with the information, right? Mm -hmm. That's um, a really cool way of looking at it, yeah. Yeah, or um, all the information in the world won't tell us what the future will look like, mm -hmm. right? So we have to take the information that we have, the knowledge that we have, the knowledge that we're creating and producing and sort of try to do something with it. Exactly, yeah. And then sometimes we have to throw that out the window and <laughs> try to- Try something new, yeah. yeah. Uh, design thinking sometimes also suffers from the sort of jargonism mm -hmm. issue, um, you know, but at the same time, I, I've sort of noticed this about the language that sometimes it doesn't always come across to lay people, but then it doesn't always come across to scholars either because mm -hmm. the language has really been driven by sort of private sector sort of consulting language, I think. Mm -hmm. So it can be really hard to explain what it is. Um, and it's also hard to say what it is in comparison to other things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So um, just takes time. Yeah. And then, <laughs> something we've always talked about with our fellows is that, um, you know, there's a different explanation for every audience. Mm -hmm. You know, the way that I might talk to you about it might be different from, you know, my family asks me what I'm doing. You know, I give them a very um, pared down version of that because they're not so immersed in my world. And I think that's really how we have to, you know, approach learning and conversation. I as a, you know, white woman in the United States from upper middle class background who wanted to work in international development, mm -hmm. my identity has always been, um, you know, sort of front and center in not only sometimes unconsciously driving what I'm doing, but then also as a sort of, um, sometimes a source of anxiety, sometimes, um, uh, so yeah, sort of unconscious power tool that I don't realize I'm enacting, um, shaping mm -hmm. my way of thinking about things. Um, but then also, um, sometimes it's just a place to reflect on differences. And so, you know, I've always tried to be very conscientious of, and I think this is why I've often, I was often drawn to critiques of international development, um, practices trying to be conscientious of not sort of imposing a, a quote unquote westernized view of the mm -hmm. world um, onto other people and being one of the things that humans under design is often um, sort of uh, one of the reasons why people in international development often talk about human centered design is it, you know, they're making the claim that it helps you design a sort of a cross cultural difference. Um, and I think that that's really valuable and that's something that early on kind of um, drew me to it. I think later on in terms of having an evolution of thinking about where my place is in the world in terms of doing this work, mm -hmm. um, it's come much more, my attraction to human-centered design has come much, it's much more related to finding ways to sort of support and, um, you know, encourage and, you know, sort of facilitate people using their design agency 
mm-hmm. to take action in the world. Um, and so there's many times when um, identity has sort of worked against me um, in terms of, I'll give you an example. When I did my field work in Kenya with an organization there, um, I there were sort of subtle work practices that sometimes I didn't love. <laughs> and it took me a long time to realize that I might be sort of being arrogant about things that I assumed were um, sort of natural. For example, uh, when I was at this organization and I, when I would travel around, meetings tended to be really long. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I would do my trainings, I would kind of come and say like, oh, I want to be efficient. I want to make great use of time. I want to do this and that. And, you know, people would complain about the inefficiency of the meetings. So I was sort of assuming that, okay, the way that I've been taught to have meetings, you know, having an agenda, um, mm-hmm. you know, making it productive, making it short is better. And it took me a while to realize the function of those meetings, especially in a scenario I was working in a very rural environment in which people are not in constant communication with each other through email and, um, you know, cell phone, everyone has cell phones, but there's not that sort of constant stream of information happening and constant contact. And so a lot of that meeting time could be relationship building. Yeah. Right. Um, or, you know, and there's lots of cultural reasons why those meetings went long that I don't need to necessarily get into, but they served a lot of purposes. And when I would come in and run my meetings a certain way, I think it would put certain people off or it'd make them feel like, um, I don't know, they would just kind of joke around about, oh, Americans are so rude. <laughs> like they don't uh, spend time, that kind of thing. Um, and people always put at the end, like, I wish we had more time for dialogue and reflection. And, um, you know, so sort of learning how my identity might be shaping my cultural practices in really ways that I might have thought were subtle and insignificant or invisible to me before that. Mm-hmm. Um, going through those experiences um, has been really meaningful and just being exposed to different ways of doing things. Um, you know, I think a lot of times we think of culture as sort of like big C practices, like different food or music, but it's really, it's the way that we engage in our daily environment. It's the way that we communicate over email. It's the way that we have meetings, Mm -hmm. all of these things. I'm often using it in very subtle ways um, Mm -hmm. that don't necessarily resemble a like design cycle or process. Um, You know, I think human-centered design often plays a role in how I engage in my sort of daily work and practice. Um, I'm often thinking about, for example, when I'm teaching a class, I have all these ideas about what I want students to do or how they want them to behave. But ultimately, I try to design my classrooms, um, you know, not based on some sort of moral idea of what they should be doing, but really what's going to be effective. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that has meant, um, you know, creating more space for discussion, even when there's concepts that I want to, you know, instill in them. Um, that has meant giving them more choices over certain assignments or, you know, co-creating assignments. Um, based on sort of the insight for me that a lot of younger people, when they feel a sense of ownership over the learning process, will engage more. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so there may be times where I think I have a way of doing something, but I recognize um, from a human-centered aspect that I have to design that experience so that they find it meaningful and, and they'll take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'm often thinking about, yeah, that human-centered component. Um, how do we really, you know, sort of, how do we really design things so that they work, not based on necessarily how we think they should work? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've often um, found myself being more experimental and willing to sort of share early versions of things or prototypes with people, um, sort of adopting that experimental attitude and, um, you know, sort of putting that in front of people earlier for feedback or for testing. I often feel like I do that now. Um, In terms of like a longer or larger process, um, I'll give you an example. So in our own space in the Taylor Center, we have, you know, had ongoing sort of ever evolving design decisions Mm -hmm. about the space, how we use it, how we structure it, how we, you know, decorate it, that kind of thing. And over the summer, we were having some debates about, um, you know, should we get lockers, sort of how to deal with certain storage questions, or, um, you know, sort of the clutter in the office, um, lack of space to do different kinds of work, so private work or phone calls or that kind of thing. Um, And so I just, through conversations with coworkers, I wasn't in charge of these design decisions by any means, but I offered to try to facilitate a design session for us to sort of advance some questions. Um, And one thing that I really like to do in order to remember that steps of design are happening sort of simultaneously, like as you mentioned, it's not this sort of chronological process, like first you do research, then you do this, Mm -hmm. then you do that, and you never go back to the research phase, or, you know, there's a prototyping phase, and then you move on. Um, I like to create dynamic visual spaces that allow us to sort of move back and forth among these different modes. So um, on the board, I sort of created a space for who are our users and who are we going to concentrate on today? And, you know, so that we can make decisions about we're going to focus on us as staff and faculty and not so much all the students who come through our doors, like we're going to narrow it today. Um, you know, creating a space for ideas that come up or drawings or that kind of thing, you know, having a board for talking about how we're actually framing the problem. Is it an issue of storage um, or is it an issue of, you know, not having the right materials, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so being able to create that dynamic visual space, I think, is a really interesting way to engage the group in walking around in those different modes of action. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure it 100% works all the time effectively because I think that people can, and I certainly remember some of my coworkers commenting on, what am I supposed to do now? And it's like, well, go to the part of the board that gravitates you. But that's also just how I think. Like sometimes I, you know, I'm having an analytical moment and it'll jump right to an idea and then I'll go back to something else. Um, So sometimes people can have a hard time, you know, moving around in those different modes of thinking. 
But to me, that's just what makes sense. Um, you know, cause sometimes, so like, you know, in classrooms or have you ever seen this where somebody has like a parking lot? Um, so sometimes somebody will write in a flip chart, like parking lot for ideas or questions or things that come up that are outside oh, yeah, yeah. of what's possible to sort of address mm -hmm. and discuss at this moment. Yeah. I think my mind is always having a parking lot moment. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm always having questions come up and then needing to, you know, just, yeah, sort of be able to deal with different categories of information and processing at once. And so that's kind of how I like to set up design sessions, really. Um, and I think that when I'm at home or when I'm doing this process on my own or doing a smaller design process with other people, if I can have some say in how that process goes, I'm often um, creating sort of like physical areas where I can move around in those different um, parts of design thinking modes. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I might have to try that. Um, and <laughs> like getting up and like moving around and being like, okay, this is the space for this task. And this like, here's like, this is where you go when you have this objective that might kind of like, I don't know, help with like being more innovative or creative if you just focus in on one thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like we can do all of these things all at once. And so, mm -hmm. and often we do this when we are, say, creating an outline for a paper or organizing digital files. Like we're categorizing information and processing it in different ways. Um, but sometimes it can really help to say, yeah, like step over to a part of the room and say, okay, now you're going to put on your sort of ideation hat in which you're going to imagine lots of possibilities and allow yourself to be free and open to that and here's some ways of stimulating that and over here is you know where we're going to think about um, narrowing down and sort of coming up with questions about what we want to test about one particular idea one of the origins of design thinking you know sort of theory is this idea of you know a reflexive practitioner or reflection and action. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what a lot of design is. It's sort of taking a step, reflecting on it, pivoting, moving around, um, doing something else. Um, so it is about, it's about being in motion. So really sometimes it's just about trying something and then reflecting on it. Um, you know, so picking a small method and seeing how that uh, furthers your um, problem solving process, you know, um, and again, it might be pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. So if you've never done any sort of, you know, social science or firsthand primary research, you might try just doing one interview with somebody, mm -hmm. talking to them, hearing about their experience. Um, you know, maybe it's about just creating a draft and sharing it. Um, you know, maybe if you tend to find yourself in an analytical mode, often it's challenging yourself to brainstorm lots of possibilities and, um, doing so with really wild and wacky prompts or, um, you know, so kind of choosing one small thing and trying it and seeing how that goes and then sort of saying, okay, what did that, what did that yield? Mm -hmm. Where did that get me? Okay. Now I have a greater, you know, say I was trying to understand, um, students, social media use on campus and I interviewed, interviewed you, um, cause I actually know nothing about what's happening these days. <laughs> Like, is Facebook still cool? I don't think so. Um, you know, if I spent time talking to you about that, I would get a lot of deep insight. Um, what I wouldn't have necessarily were ideas. 
unless you offer those, right? Um, or what I wouldn't necessarily have, or what I might, I might need to pause and sort of figure out, okay, where do I go next? Do I need to talk to more students? Do I need to, you know, practice using Snapchat? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, do I need to bring a bunch of students together to create a new social media tool, right? Or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, Zaza Caballadondo was a woman that we brought, a scholar um, that we brought to the Taylor Center, or really to Tulane, but through the Taylor Center, I believe it was last year. Um, and she's a learning scientist who um, has focused on design thinking. And one of the papers I actually read of hers way before I ever met her, um, talked about the skill of sort of metacognition. Mm. And so being able to stop in a process and assess where you are and figure out where to go next, I think is really important. Um, and that relates to that sort of like reflection and action. So can we have a higher level view of our own process um, and not just stay in the content zone, if that makes sense. So not just the content of trying to solve the problem, but how are we actually going about solving the problem? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that that relates to my advice about um, for people starting off in design thinking. And when I say push yourself out of your comfort zone, I don't necessarily mean having to learn to do things that aren't your natural inclination or that make you uncomfortable. I think I mean, do the things that you're not always doing, mm -hmm. right? Because sometimes there could be a lot of joy in that. Yeah. Trying a different way of seeing something or doing something. Thank you all so much for listening along with us. Now we're just going to talk a little bit about our takeaways from the interview. Natalie, how do you feel like place and identity impact Dr. Fonin's work? Uh, yeah, Dr. Fonin talked about how her identity as an upper middle-class white woman has always been front and center and how it really impacts her work. And because it is front and center, she's become conscientious of it, trying not to push a white westernized view of the world onto other people especially when she does work in international development. Dr. Fonin seems to lean into the reflections and understanding the role her identity plays in her work. And I think that's important that she is reflecting and working to understand how she may come off to people and communities she may be working with. What about you? Yeah, you know, I can really relate to what Dr. Fonin was talking about. Um, when I was serving as a volunteer in the Peace Corps, it was pretty easy to fall into the trap of white saviorism, um, which is a huge conversation that I could sit here and talk about for hours. But just hearing about Dr. Fonin's experience in international development, you know, where her identity has really been front and center, uh, really resonated with me because this seems like the right way to approach international development work as a white person, being wholly conscious of one's identity and privilege. I, in fact, I think it's the only ethical way to approach it. Um, cultural identity shapes our approaches to things in such subtle, nuanced ways, and we have to be so conscious of the way that shows up in our work, especially as public health professionals. So it was really great that Dr. Fonin touched on that. Yeah, that's a good thought. That definitely because you have the experience to speak on that. What did you learn from Dr. Fonin about design, design thinking, and social innovation? Um, I like that she talked about how she learned design thinking formally and traditionally through management discourse, you know, through this um, very, very traditional approach. Um, but since then, she's allowed her perception of design to evolve to serve her work. And this freer definition of design thinking offers 
much more creativity and imagination, which is something that goes beyond what maybe traditional research and scholarship offers. Um, one thing that she says that I thought was really interesting was that all the information in the world won't tell us the future or what it will look like. So we have to use the tools we have to create a better version of today. Uh, what do you feel like you learned? Yeah, that was a great quote. Um, Dr. Fonin talked about how she uses design thinking as a tool for action, which I really like. I think this can help to put an understanding as to how design thinking itself isn't just like an inactive process. Every step of the process is a tool that works towards an actionable outcome. And I think this process and type of thinking should be used to take action, to change something for the better and whatever that better is or how it's defined by whoever you're working with or whatever the project's goal or outcome is. Yeah, absolutely. Such words of wisdom in this interview. Um, so we're both students who are not formal designers. So what advice do you feel like you took away from this episode as a non-designer using a design thinking methodology? Yeah, Dr. Fonin seemed to talk quite a bit about reflection, sometimes not even saying the word, but that seemed to be the idea around it. And so the piece of advice that I took away is that you have to be able to reflect when using design methods and meaning that you should be able to step back, reflect and see if what you're doing with those methods is really actionable and is what is needed for the project. Stepping back and reflecting can help you to try to see something from another viewpoint or pivoting because in your reflection, you realize what you're doing is not really working the way you thought it should or you thought it would, I guess. Um, what advice did you take away? Um, yeah, I guess rather than taking a problems-focused approach in international development work, um, as Dr. Fonin was describing, um, she talks about taking a process-focused approach, you know, how to do the work and how to co-create solutions alongside the community. Um, so human-centered design is a way to move forward after addressing problematic areas and after tearing down the things that need to be torn down. Um, so focusing on humanity seems like such a great way to get back to basics when the task of rebuilding seems so daunting. Um, and, you know, that's a design perspective that I think we could all use, just taking that approach to, um, to how and focusing on the process. Yeah, definitely. Uh, was there anything that Dr. Fonin said that surprised you that you may not have agreed with or that inspired you? Uh, well, personally, I was really inspired to hear that Dr. Fonin is so committed to creating space for discussion in her classroom, um, even when it may go against, you know, what ideas she might have for how her students should behave or how they want to approach things. Um, I, I love when professors take that approach. So it's kind of similar to what she said about human-centered design, but in this case, it's the concept of like student-centered design. And I think that's just fantastic and such a great learning environment. What about you? Yeah, I was really inspired when she talked about how she has a more experimental attitude with her work and doesn't necessarily strive for perfection and is willing to share the early versions of her projects or products. And I think we often get afraid to receive criticism for our work if it isn't perfect, but nothing will ever be perfect. And I think the earlier we can, we can get feedback on our projects, the more helpful it can be to making something impactful and valuable. But what do you think, listeners? Please feel free to check out our website and let us know what you thought about this episode in the comments. We hope you enjoyed this interview from our Hello from the Pluriverse series. A special thank you to Arturo Escobar, the author of Designs for the Pluriverse, for opening the space for conversations about pluriversality in design. 
Many thanks as well to all of our interviewees, our design thinking student team, Ruby, Lupe, Delaney, Tran, and Wissal, the students of the fall 2019 SICE 3010 class, Levante, Lucas, our editor, and the rest of the team at the Taylor Center at Tulane. If you have any suggestions for our program, please email your comments, suggestions, and questions to taylor at tulane.edu. And also you can visit our website at taylor.tulane.edu.